0: And good morning. Welcome to Solidarity Breakfast. I'm John. Aletha's on a bit of a break, so uh, I'm filling in. hope you're having a good morning, keeping warm. It's a bit cold out there, but hey, that's the way it goes. So, on the show today, well, let me just tell you that, that of course, you're with 3CR, 855 AM, streaming 3cr.org.au and available on demand and I think we do have a podcast as well. So on the program today, we're going to start with an interview dealing with the transition from coal to, well, we'll put a question mark, in the Latrobe Valley because they are grappling with what's going to happen after the coal mines and the electric the energy companies finally decide that they're going to have to move away from coal. So, we're going to talk a little bit about the transition. Then we're going to follow that with a discussion on the aging population in Australia and the impacts of social policies on particularly women and some of the discriminatory practices that have been put in place that have an effect on women in an aging population, women over the age of 55. And finally, at 8.30, we're going to have an interview with Glenn Todd, and he's a guy who's working with activists dealing with surveillance and data retention and data sharing. And he's going to be talking a little bit about what we can all do to make ourselves a bit more secure in the world of the cyber culture. And of course at 820, we're going to have the regular, that's the week that was. We're solidarity breakfast. Well, I thought maybe we might start with something that I'm calling outrages of the week. Well, what's that all about? Uh, basically looking at various news outlets and finding out what's, what's going on and may, what makes my blood boil, what makes life bad for my blood pressure and my health outrages of the week. And uh, let me start with this one. And maybe you ran across this, maybe you didn't, but uh, this was a little piece about, it was headlined, Poverty No Problem for Luxury Car Finance. I don't know whether you ran across this one, but it seems that BMW has been so desperate to get people behind the wheel of its luxury cars that its finance company gave loans to people with zero or even negative disposable incomes. And accepted false loan documents while paying big bonuses to its most relentless and reckless salesmen. So, this one really, I guess, bad for my health, bad for all of our healths, I think, bad for the health of the economy, and I think bad for uh, just generally the way the world works. Um, there's been a scathing review of BMW in uh australia and their financial arm and uh turns out that their sales culture is uh basically one where they push people so hard to get sales they're prepared to lend money to people who basically don't have any money to buy that kind of a car um so anyway it seems to me that uh this is probably not ex- not exclusive to BMW. I suspect that the whole of the uh, way that uh, our society operates in terms of uh, the economy is based on precisely that, getting people to buy stuff that they basically don't need with money that they don't have in order to, well, what? To what? To what end, exactly? Um I think that's, uh, well, for me, that would be, I guess, one of the top outrages of the week. Uh, bad for my blood pressure. Bad for all of our blood pressures. Now, another one to do with a bit of money. And, uh, again, this is outrages of the week, uh, reading the headline here about the, uh, Commonwealth Bank of Australia, his, uh, his majesty, um, the head of the Commonwealth Bank, uh, And then ends up getting this uh, huge uh, pay, uh, annual pay, uh, $12.3 million million last financial year after he received a multi-million dollar share bonus for the bank's performance in the previous years. Well, once again, you know, what do we got here? Uh, BMW lending money to uh, people that don't have it. And then a bank giving money, which it probably doesn't have either, to the CEO um, for great performance. The CBA's annual report was sh- on Monday showed the total remuneration for uh, the head was lifted more than fifty percent from now, get this, it was lifted from eight million to twelve point three million. Okay. Outrages of the week number two. Outrages of the week number three. Look, where do you start with outrages of the week? I gotta tell you that's, uh, it's, it's hard to select, but this one was in yesterday's newspaper and it has to do with the universities catching cheats by monitoring the keystrokes on their computers. Now, Melbourne University and a number of other universities are putting in place this rather unique program, app, I'm not sure what you call it, that will monitor students' typing styles and attract students as they complete assignments. And apparently all of us have different ways of typing, of course. Some are slower, some are faster. Sometimes we put our fingers on the keys and hold them there a bit longer than other people. Well, it seems this this particular program is able to track exactly how your keystrokes work, and this follows. This interestingly enough follows uh, another story that was released a couple of weeks ago about Melbourne University using tracking co- tracking software or tracking uh, computer. Uh, location uh, devices to find out whether students are going to the library. they collect evidence against students to find out where they're spending their time. and they use things like Wi-Fi routers matching their movements with their online activity, with demographic data, and uh, they uh, apparently this is uh, the reason they're doing all this is to predict whether students will be dropping out or not. To me, this is the thin edge of the wedge, if it hasn't been wedged already. Um, this stuff, stuff is very easy to parlay into all kinds of other um, very uh, nefarious activities. Now, I don't want to leave you with uh, high blood pressure, so let's. This is the counter outrage of the week, and I want to Shout out to the Bendigo Street uh, occupiers who have been occupying um, the houses on Bendigo Street in Collingwood, well, for what, you know, close to three months, I think, uh, the Homeless Persons Union, and uh, they've been doing a great job, and um, hey, they're the counter outrage of the week, they've been given a stay of, uh, of um, they're being allowed to stay a little bit longer, they've taken their case to court, um, and uh, we'll have to wait and see what happens there. But uh, these are houses that were bought for the East-West Link. And um, the you know, Homeless Persons Union have been squatting in the houses for some considerable time and saying, well, they're there, the government owns them, why can't we just leave in them? And uh, that's the way things should be. And uh, we are Solidarity Breakfast this morning. I'm John, and uh, Lalitha's taking a little bit of a break, so I'm filling in. We just had, uh, well, Outrages of the Week, I guess. Uh, we're going to call that little last little segment, and of course, you are on 3CR. The predicted decline of the coal industry in Victoria's Latrobe Valley is a serious challenge to local economy. But it's also an important opportunity for the community to take ownership of its future. Ron Ibsen is a member of Voices of the Valley. They're a community-based organization that's been proactively seeking a new path for the region and investigating new ways to future-proof jobs and community well-being. Ron, I've been told, is definitely not a morning person. So here's a double thanks for having him come on the show this morning to talk about those post coal challenges and opportunities. Good morning, Ron.
1: Good morning, John. How are you going?
0: Good. I wanted to start with a uh, – I had a look at your, or your website, and there's a very prominent quote uh, on it that I found on the Voices of the Valley. It was actually on your, web, uh, your Facebook page, and it said, you can't transition a technology or an economy without transitioning a community. From your perspective, can you tell us why this quote was so important?
2: Uh, that's that's the quote from me, actually.
0: Uh, Ron! (laughs) Well done, Ron. That's, uh, uh, well, I, credit where credit is due. That's, sorry, but I didn't realize it was your quote.
2: Oh, no, that's alright, that's alright. Uh, that's a bit flattering, actually. Uh, Uh, It's, uh, you can't transition a, a, a technology or an economy without transitioning the community, um, because they're because they're interlinked. They're all um, uh, like an ecosystem, uh, and it's very much about the way the way people think and the way they see themselves. Uh, if we just try and, and transition the, the technology, you, you tend to uh, drop a lot of people off behind as you as you move. Uh, and people become unemployable and those
0: sorts of things. Now you're talking about the transition basically from the coal based industry and infrastructure in the Latrobe Valley to something else. So is that basically what this is about?
2: Yes. Yeah. There's, we have to <coughs> we have to transition all three. We have to transition the technology that's already happening. Uh The grid itself is changing. The uh, the community has to change and accept that. Um, we have to transition the economy. Uh and we have to transition our economy from uh being dependent on the large uh the large power stations and the jobs that they provide uh and the flow on of that uh to being a little more independent. Uh jobs that stay here, jobs that uh, jobs that make things for our community that our community uses. Uh, and we have to transition our community to, um, uh, from, uh, well, as I said, that kind of dependency that you've got with the economy to, uh, or perhaps we're looking at, uh, at cooperatives, uh, owning their own jobs, owning their own, uh, their own energy corporation. We've got 30 years to, uh, uh to look at what we can do it's not something that has to be done tomorrow mm. so uh yeah that's what, what that wanted to look i
0: just so you're really actually uh, the last thing you're talking about is is quite a i suppose a dramatic break from from what's what's traditionally been the case we'll come back i like to come back to that actually but i um i was just reading a, a little bit of background and just to get get a bit of background for you to to fill us in um the community held a forum uh, recently to canvass some ideas about the future of the valley, and uh, I read there was there was a, a huge turnout. What were some of the key issues that were raised at that forum? Um,
2: the the show I held that well it's the council <coughs> they call the council now. Um, yeah, well, I'm a bit old school, so it's always the show out of me. I keep thinking of hobbits.
0: That's <laughs> all right, that's okay that's okay
2: um yeah so the the show uh ran that one uh and it was quite well run they had uh they had a lot of people there and they were looking for ideas uh as to as to what could uh best suit and they had a big discussion uh a lot of round tables as you do uh and they came up with some figures and mostly they uh they covered things like uh, there was one that was put forward was for, uh, uh, geriatric care, a center for geriatric care for the valley. Mm-hmm. Uh, to specialize in that because we've got some beautiful places to, uh, around. Yes. If, if you wanted to be an oldie, it's a good spot. Yes. Um, there was a lot, a lot on transition. Uh, a lot of people wanted to, uh, wanted a path forward, wanted to know where they were going. Sure. Um and there was a, a little of uh, a fair push towards uh equality of uh, public transport access. Uh-huh. Uh we had a little bit of a problem recently about um uh, uh about the railway line going in uh into town where everybody had to get off and
0: yes, I re-
2: there was a proposal.
0: Yes, I remember reading about that
2: yeah yeah which the people strongly objected to uh so yeah mostly it was about mostly it turned out it was about uh the people wanted to know a future mm. uh, and we've been we've been addressing that we looked at their concerns and and had a look at how that could be uh how their concerns tied in with what we were doing, and we altered some of what we were doing to suit that.
0: How do you think the, uh, how do you think the council is, is, uh, is dealing with all this? Is Are, are they on board with, with some of your ideas uh, in Voices of the Valley? Um,
2: yeah, they are. The council's only just, uh, only just started to, um, look at transition. We, we were wandering in there with plans for transition and we need to do this. We need to get a move on, Um, uh, for a while now. And it was only after the announcements that uh the announcement that there was forty million dollars in it um, uh, they started to take some interest mm, mm. Uh, so we we're we we're a little disappointed in that, but we were glad that they did uh and they've been really quite good um they still don't have a definitive action. We were very disappointed earlier on in the year they uh when the show I produced their economic report uh what they were going to do over the next uh five years. Um and their economic plan and it was mostly uh coal, coal and more coal. Right. And, uh, yeah. Food and fiber, but mostly coal. Yes. Uh and we we well actually we were sitting in a meeting and the uh and the CEO asked us what we what we thought of their new plan and we told them it was rubbish.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right
2: didn 't mention renewable energies at all it didn't it didn't it didn 't talk about the future industries or anything that was going to happen. It was just you know
0: mm. uh,
2: it was a bit droll so we told them
0: so well, you might as well speak your mind at this point because it's it is the future as you said, and uh, I think the planning has to start happening right right now
2: oh, yeah, probably probably should have happened five ten years ago
0: absolutely uh, yeah. the other look the other question i i just just to pick up on this um the community feeling and so on what what's the sense in the community i mean you you're- you're, a voice, you're in this organization you're clearly uh thinking you know long term voices of the valley but what what about the uh the other parts of the community are are they aware of the sorts of things that are going on and they they need to confront this
2: uh, in a, in a in a sense you can't live in the valley and and not be aware of it of what what has to happen. But, um, a lot of it. So I'm a, I'm a third generation, uh, power station worker. Mm. So it's, it's, uh, and I'm not the only one. Um, there's a lot of us, there's a lot of us that worked in the power station that, uh, that have done it for generations. And, uh, that's very much a part of how the community saw themselves. So there's a lot of people will put their head in the sand so that they don't have to think about it. Uh, there are a lot of, a lot of issues down here. Uh, we've got a, uh, um, uh, let's just turn that around. One of the things that we're doing, uh, and that we're, that we're quite proud of is people have looked at the transition at the, at the end of the stations, um, as a really bad thing. Uh, and that's not necessarily so. Um,
0: yeah, I was going to, th- this is what I was, I was actually, my next question was, a lot of people are talking about the transition in terms, of, and, and you've mentioned this already, new types of food production, clean and green agriculture, tourism, and so on. But Voices of the Valley, as I, un- I understand it, wants to build on what's already there. Essentially, there is an infrastructure in place. There's a community that's historically evolved around the power industry and large-scale power generation. Is that, is that right that you, what, basically your, your thinking on this is to build on the kinds of things that are already in place, but transition into some new, um, new areas, new jobs and so on?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, all of, all the power lines lead to the valley. Uh, because originally all power came from the valley. So. Uh, even the lines that go to Tasmania come in through the valley. So it's a, a really good point, um, to be able to do some, some things like, um, like store energy, for example. Um, energy storage is, a, is a, uh, a huge upcoming industry. And I don't mean just, you know, Tesla batteries in the house. Uh, we're seriously going to have to have some good storage. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's because everybody knows that the, uh, uh, the renewables fluctuate in their production. So you've got to be able to store it. Uh, so that kind of technology, I believe, is very much part of the future
0: here. So you're really, you're, you're, in a sense, you're building on what's already there. You're not, the transition isn't into something completely new, but rather building on what you've got historically as a community.
2: Uh, absolutely. But it. it, it there are things that are absolutely new we'll be changing from um, um the actual being the generator of all electricity to being um the enabler of the renewals um, so it's a, it's a it's a different mindset we've be looking at uh instead of just generating the electricity you'll be looking at uh at storing and regenerating it um for example, you might store it as heat and then uh, and then use the use the heat to uh, fire up turbines again and mm. turn it back into steam so that's the regeneration process uh, and that can be done through compressed air or um, or molten salt several different technologies you can use rather than just use uh, say big batteries um, yeah, and of course there's hydros which we can't tap into because we, uh, we don't have the, we don't
0: have the, uh, facilities here. You're really at the beginning of your, your, uh, I mean, you, you've been dealing with this for quite a while, but, uh, the, the actual sort of serious planning is really starting to take shape at this point in time. Uh, you've obviously got a long way to go. Look, I, I, I one of the things I, just in my, my personal res- response to everything is that it seems to me that you, you you, 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 voices of the valley and your planning is, is almost like a case study in, in how these things should be happening. You're, you're really at the forefront of, of, of this kind of change. And I guess we could look at you as a, as a, a really good example of how these things can happen.
2: Um, I think, I think we, uh, we, were, we got a bit of a leg up on that, um, because we were pretty, we were pretty blase. We only we only formed the organisation um in two thousand fourteen when the mine fire happened. Uh and that was because we had to. Mm. Um where we had to we had to stand up and say, you know, our people are sick. Uh so that sort of when we stood up that prompted all the inquiries and got all that going and then um then we had the issue with, with deaths. Uh, and we had to fight that one, so we, uh, we quite successfully challenged the government. Uh, but one of the, one of the things that did happen from that was the, uh, the community stood up and, uh, and put an independent in. Had, or didn't get elected, but, uh, certainly shook up the system and made the, uh, made the electorate, uh, very uh, marginal, extremely marginal.
1: Mm.
2: Uh, and that made a big difference.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It made a big difference. But that was the community standing up and saying, enough. Uh, and then the politicians listened, and it moved from there. So we uh, we found all the way along. We started off with, with health, and that's sort of still where we're going. Um, when we did the second inquiry, there was a... Uh, we had all of the experts under the sun here telling us... Uh, about our health and uh, did a lot of planning for what could be done. Yes. Uh, and that's underway at the moment with the, uh, the health zone, uh, task force. But, um, one of the things that we found, uh, the elephant in the room basically was that, um, the elephant in the room with, uh, with the health and well-being of the people of the valley, uh, was hope, jobs and hope. Yes. So, uh, we thought we'd better have a look at that uh and tackle that, and our approach was um uh, and we've we've ticked off Di and we've ticked them all off when they've come down um, theres Their approach was move towards something, not away from something, give the people a vision uh of what their future can be and work towards that uh rather than say you've got to go away from coal. Don't, don't hit us with a stick again. Mm. Uh, the valley down here was decimated by privatisation uh, 20 years ago, and I, I know, for the life of me, cannot understand why people do not um, uh, look at the Latrobe Valley as a, as what privatisation does to a community mm. uh, and say, well, we certainly won't privatise again. Uh, we're watching the other states going through the same thing, selling their power stations. Yep and it's it's a disaster for a community yep. It's a disaster
0: ron i've got to. we we could talk a little bit more i'm sure but i I've, I've got to head off at this point we've got to head off at this point. Is there any place we can uh, people listening can go to get a bit more information tell us where your websites are and and anything else
2: uh, voices of the valley votv.org.au, org a u is' the uh the website we're putting up as much as we can Facebook, of course, if you wanted to, if you want to interact there, uh, is good. Just, there's an open group there, Voices of the Valley, and, uh, just join that and have a bit of a say, see what we're up to. Uh,
0: and, yeah. and, there's also, uh, um, a, uh, an event coming up, Walk for, Walk with the Valley for a Just Transition.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, uh, that's to do with Earthworker and the cooperatives. Uh, they're coming down to, to set up down here. Uh, and part of the, part of the transition is, as we see it, we see, uh, the cooperatives as being, uh, very essential to the way it'll, the way it'll pan out. Yeah, so they're coming down to, to support us. Uh, they're gonna set up manufacturing down here, uh, which will be a set of, uh, cooperative jobs. So that's good. They're all in, uh, they're all in new energy too.
0: Well, let's let's check back with you in a few months to see how you're going. And I really appreciate your time this morning, and uh, all the best with all your work.
2: All right, can I get back to bed now, John? <laughs> yes, and uh, have a
0: good snooze for me. Okay, mate. Have a good <laughs> Cheers. And uh, talking there with uh, Ron Ibsen, uh, not a morning person, and he's a member of Voices of the Valley, as you heard, and they're dealing with the transition post-call. Where does the community go? And that's where you are. This is 3CR, and this is Solidarity Breakfast. Good morning. It's about uh, six minutes after eight o'clock. Women and men experience the impacts of social policy differently. Early in the week, Good Shepherd Women's Policy Forum held a conference to explore the implications of this difference, particularly as it applies to an aging population like the one we have right here in Australia specialist in women's health adjunct associate professor Susan Feldman from Monash University was a contributor to this forum and she's on the line this morning good morning Susan
3: good morning John
0: Now, I wanted to ask, in conjunction with this conference, you wrote a very interesting piece in the conversation, which was intriguingly, for me, intriguingly entitled, Why Australian Women Over 55 Aren't Exactly Enjoying the Time of Their Lives. (laughs) And in the article, you say that gender inequalities women have experienced throughout their lives become even more pronounced as they grow older and that Australia lags behind most other developed countries when it comes to the economic and social well-being of an ageing female population. Now, that's a big bit of a mouthful, but could you unpack some of that for us?
3: Um, Yes, I could. Um, First of all, the title um, of this report is, um, I suppose, tongue-in-cheek, because people expect that... Older people, older women in particular, are going to be having a great time as we get older, perhaps retired from the workforce, perhaps shedding some of our responsibilities, um, looking forward to all those beautiful um, pictures, those glossy pictures in the perhaps insurance brochures and the banks show, you know, couples on the beach, travelling, etc. So that's first of all why we why we ask the question: Are older women actually in? Is this actually the time of our lives, and I include myself in that. Um, yeah, let me unpack it. so you asked you know some of the some of the issues around here is that um, there's a whole range of circumstances and experience of a lifetime, and we don't just get old one day, we grow older, obviously, this is you know pretty mm. obvious, but we bring with us a whole range of circumstances, whether they're health over our lifetime, um, working histories, uh, social, personal, uh, etc., We bring those with us into our older years. And we, as I said, people expect that everything will be fine and um, we'll get on with our lives, but, but our past histories and experiences, education, etc., opportunities, all, all ripple together uh, to create the ageing experience, and particularly for older women. So it's ter- it's really important to understand a life trajectory when you be- want to understand how someone the quality of someone's life and experiences as they age, particularly in the older years, and, and
0: when uh, it's really in
4: about 55.
0: Yeah, in this article you said that, and I thought this was a very interesting point. You said that Australia is a, a very wealthy country; it r- ranks very highly up there. But when it comes to policies to dealing with uh, the ageing population, particularly the ageing female population, we drop way, way down the scale and Australia is well behind. Tell us a little bit about that.
3: Well, first of all, um, I just let me backtrack a tiny, tiny bit. When we think about growing older and we talk about ageing in this country and indeed in other countries, it, it's been fairly um, traditional and it remains so that we talk about always link aged care. We always think about aged care. So aged care, the cost of aged care, the use of aged care, the lack of aged care is on everybody's agenda. High on policy uh, agendas as well. And we're seeing big changes right now in the aged care services and how they're going to be organised, etc. cetera. Um, we don't, once again, have a look at ageing, the experience of ageing. So, again, these statistics are very scary because, in fact... It's the circumstances of people's lives, such as housing, um, access to affordable housing. This is one of the most incredibly important aspects of life. And in this country, we're very, very poor at providing affordable housing for both young and older people, um, decent public housing. um, And especially as you age, your needs change, and particularly as you age age. Uh, for women, they may be living alone. So we really um, are falling behind in Australia and uh, from the rest of the world in terms of uh, what we can provide older women in terms of security in their older age, um, income security. Well, I suppose in many ways we would say, OK, OK, we have a terrific pension system, don't we? Other countries don't have pension systems, don't have welfare nets, etc. um but we are still falling behind for, a, what do we call it now, developed country, industrialised country, modern, whatever it is. Mm. We're, not, we're not meeting the demand for people to live with adequate income in their older years. Um, we're just not doing it. We're falling behind, particularly, as I mentioned, um, housing, number one, housing, mm. affordable housing, mm. appropriate housing. So Some of these measures, and I'm not a statistician, but I can tell you, um, and so I can't unpack the actual um, details of how these um, numbers are 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 got to, but I know that housing, health um, will be up there, up there to push that number up to 67 for income security. Very insecure for older people if they have to rely on the pension. Um, and the other thing is we're seeing with a great fiddling of superannuation. Now that's going to be, that's a big debate about whether, you know, having a $1.2 million entitled mm. view to government uh, benefits. That's a whole other, that's a whole other debate. But older women, because of, and old, older women in particular, because of their, their income and work history, do not have enough um, money, capital, income to get them through older age, and that's what pushes these figures up. The actual money you have to live on. Yeah. Susan, I,
0: the other thing I wanted to ask you about was uh, you've, you've been involved in a study um, that you published recently uh, uh, that deals with some of these things, and uh, you found yeah. a complex of uh, w- what your study basically is dealing with was w- where these disadvantages come from. There's, some of them are social, some of them are economic. Uh, you've touched on a few of them. What are some of the other ones that uh, that basically are structural that lead women to, into these disadvantaged positions?
3: Well, yes, that's right. It's a complex web. And um, I must say, my study was um, a literature review. And you think, oh, well, you know, what's a literature go- review going to show you? First of all, it showed me um, and my, part, my research partner was that um, women... Um, and disaggregated data, looking at men and women, so taking a gendered approach to the data, and I'm talking from the biggest, God bless us, the ABS down, um, does not necessarily disaggregate data based on age, over it's 65 plus, or it's 55 plus, or gender, and we're the most major reports are not paying attention to the specific circumstances of women, and indeed men, and compare them. So mm. it's, older pe- it's older people. So right. in terms of the gaps in the data, which mm.
1: leads to mm.
3: some of our ignorance, we're not, we need to go back into the data and say, is there a difference for men and for women as they age? Mm. And across the cohorts of age, a... 75-year-old is not like a 55-year-old. An 80-year-old is nothing like a 65-year-old in terms of life experience. So we come to some of the more structural issues. Uh, Well, work, as I mentioned briefly, the capacity, the willingness, but mostly the opportunity to continue to work in some form
1: Mm. uh,
3: is incredible. underpins people's um, capacity for cash in hand. It may not make a huge difference to the superannuation pot if you've only got five years to work. But people, older people, older women, have a lot of pressures from family responsibilities these days. And people more and more are giving the younger members of their family financial assistance. And I I guess people who are maybe listening to this, and even yourself, in an extended family uh, younger people uh, have different needs, and older people are often the, the, the family members who come to the assistance, and there's documents everywhere. Mm, mm. Also, the caring responsibilities. Now, these play a really large role in an older person, an older mm, woman's mm. capacity to work,
1: yes. and we
3: know we know that women might go part-time because they say, I can't continue to work and assist my ageing parent, or I can't continue to work and assist my children with their children. So these these flexible work, work that is um, taking account of changing life circumstances for an older person, whether it be a man or a woman. Um, also the serious nature of people's endeavour. People People, many people want to continue working in good work. They want to be paid well, they might even want a career. Sure. Well, they might want to come back to work.
1: Mm-hmm. That's,
3: that's one issue. We're, we're really not very good. We're mm-hmm. just not
0: really good. Um, no, sorry, can I just uh, yeah. continue with uh, your study? And uh, just add, something that struck me when I was reading your article in the conversation was yeah. when you did the study, you actually asked participants to give you some ideas about what they yeah. would like to happen. And one of the things that struck me that was very interesting was that the women that you interviewed talked a lot about new technologies, giving them opportunities to do things. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Because I think that's a very intriguing way of thinking about things, that they were talking about using online technologies to help them in employment, in their social relations and so on. Tell us a little bit about that.
3: Yeah, I think when you talk about older people, and particularly older women, people are quite surprised. I get you. I mean, surprised about that that older people would care about modern technologies. Well, uh, people create jobs of work from home. That was one of the biggest issues. You can work from your home and many, many, many members of our community do. Why shouldn't older people, older women be connected through the technology to continue their work, whatever it is, and their contribution to employment through um, uh, being at home, not being in the office, in other words. The other the other issue that we know um, about is um, in enterprise, in, in um, small business, and there are, you know, many, many older people. In fact, I think we even looked at this, the, the, the fastest growing group of entrepreneurs in inverted commas. It could be from, I don't know, bottling something to creating something artistically. Um, to a real, a real employment agency, et etc. Cetera, et cetera. These are women. People are wanting to continue working, and they're being becoming more entrepreneurial. I don't mean big bucks either. I just no. mean people who've got skills. So using the technology um, is one way from doing it at home, doing it in groups of people who develop networks, um, as young people do. Young people use Facebook and Instagram and everything else. These are communication tools and older people use them as well. Mm. One of the big ones for older people um, to continue to communicate when perhaps they're not uh, physically very well um, is through Skype and and a lot of the online communication tools to communicate with family um, and friends. And we mustn't ever underestimate um, the value of these communication tools for um, in lessening um, isolation mm. or people. Feelings of isolation, um, depression, um, just just being out of the social activities of their family makes a huge difference to people. But but just to go back, and it's around information. So technology provides people with up to date information, um, and it, so it's not just sitting on a computer alone. There are many, um, there are there are some examples in Melbourne already of a group of older people who are trying to form. Their own businesses. There's a couple of great social enterprises where people come together to learn about the technology, uh, get assistance for setting up large, large uh, technological innovations beyond my, my capacity. Mm. Um, being being engaged with younger people um, uh, to assist if that's necessary. But also, it's the stuff we do every day, like the banking, mm.
1: uh,
3: like uh, anything you have to pay online. Well, it's a really important strategy for older people to be able to engage with this technology really well. Mm, mm. You can't go into a bank anymore, and if you want to do some even simple, even simple negotiations like pay a bill, you need to understand this. But if you want to be a bit more complicated about this and you want to do some communications, or, or people pay the stock exchange.
1: No
3: mm, <laughs> mm. older people. Mm. You know, still, whether they're rich or, you know, whether they have limited income, they do stock exchange stuff online. So, well, you know, good luck to them. But this, you, you need to understand the technology.
0: Susan, we're going to have to leave it at that point. But uh, it's been fascinating talking to you. And I wanted to ask where, if people listening want to get a bit more information and particularly find out about your uh, the study that you did, where would they go to find that?
3: Um, that's available online through the Lord Mayor's Charitable Foundation website. So they just look at uh, online, I think it's, you know, LMCF or Lord Mayor's Charitable Foundation and the whole report sits there on we'll, their
0: website. Yeah, we'll put that on our website as well okay. so people can access that. Thank I want to th- thank you very much. It's early morning Saturday and I want to thank you so much for participating in Solidarity Breakfast this morning. Thank you, John. Uh, talking there with uh, adjunct associate professor Susan Feldman from Monash University, who's a specialist in women's health. And the title of the study that she w- we were talking about is Time of Our Lives? Building Opportunity and Capacity for the Economic and Social Participation of Older Australian Women. As And as she said, it's available online. You're with Solidarity Breakfast. We're Solidarity Breakfast. I'm John. "'That was the week that was.'
5: A weak Solidarity briggy Team listener when I'm seething with hate and anger I'm sure you too feel depressed and angry, hating not hating or not being able to express our well-founded hate, hatred angry that the goody-goody black armband commie greenie wouldn't work in an iron lot block our right to hate hate those who aren't like us the goody-goody lot themselves for instance or weak need, lily-livered gutless churches which put up signs expressing goody goody lovey dovey black armband capitulatory crap don't we hate that all those races religions no proper papers cue jumping illegal boat people we're told we must hate but can't say we hate and we're told some of them are good and it's not all of them but hate them anyway but don't say it Although on the no proper papers both people are legal, there are no good ones and we must hate them all, but we can't say we hate them unless we're the government with the responsibility of telling us we must hate them. And, of course, evil unions. Oh, no, not of course. We're allowed to hate evil unions and say we hate evil unions. And, indeed, it is a crime not to hate evil unions and not to say we hate evil unions. The government leads the way, showing hating evil unions and lazy, avaricious workers generally is respectable and proper and legal and obligatory. And liberal, caring business class when you're not caring business class, Senator David Lying Helm said saying we hate is a human right, a civil right. That people we spit vitriol at can only be hurt and offended if they feel hurt and offended. And that has nothing to do with those lovers of human rights with us spitting that vitriol. It's their own fault, which is another reason why we hate them. They're too bloody sensitive. And you throw away the key, Senator. Darren Lyncham said there should be a law outlawing those who hate those who hate. Bringing us to those we must all hate, apart from evil unions and lazy, avaricious workers and Islamic terrorists, which potentially is all Muslims, those we must hate, the evil enemy, the people, our brave young men and women in uniform, life of a party, great fun to be with trained killers, brainwashed. So, sorry, ordered, trained to hate, so they won't feel so bad about killing them and slaughtering the civilians and wedding parties who, like Muslims, are all potential killers likely to react violently to our invasion, which is for their own good, their liberation, but which they're too stupid to see. And I thought the Lord Rupert of Wapping said editorial Thursday was being most unpatriotic with its headline, Violent Men Now on Notice. And I thought, how dare the whopping sin attack our Vietnam train killer invader heroes and side with the Vietnamese government, which thinks former invaders coming back to celebrate their invasion and slaughter and destruction is a bit ordinary. But thankfully it turned out they weren't the violent men. Elsewhere we learned rightfully they were heroes and how dare the evil Vietnamese government imply we are historical revisionists by in turn implying we defeated the evil Vietnamese on behalf of the good Vietnamese. Well, more on behalf of, under instruction from the US of the UN of the US of the world when everyone knows that brave giant mind US of hero Rambo won the war single-handed thanks to the evil Vietnamese being so stupid running one by one into his arsenal screaming vile hatred after missing him at point blank range while he never missed while the good Vietnamese learned from Rambo how to be good Vietnamese because without the advice of the US they would have had no idea how to be obedient obsequious Vietnamese which is synonymous with the good bit but making hate even more problematic because there were evil Vietnamese we had to hate the evil enemy and good Vietnamese we mustn't hate like General Key and that lot albeit backward and unsophisticated and we had to learn which ones to hate and which ones not to hate and sadly the wrong lot won at the time but thanks to Rambo and our brave trained killer heroes and the US and our very own media barons and historians the result has now been reversed a retrospective great victory against evil people we must hate for objecting irrationally to us interfering in their affairs as they saw it ignoring our right as a US USOB acolyte to share the usab's right to defend liberty, freedom and democracy wherever it is, it is challenged by hateful evil. <clears throat> and while they were handing out bravery awards to the illegal invaders, I reckon the top bravery awards should go to the teenagers who preferred being on the run in jail rather than join True Blue Aussie in yet another illegal invasion. But we were surprised to find a woman treading the fine line of the law over the obligation to hate evil unions and lazy, avaricious workers, more so as she comes from a normally very, very legal evil union-hating machine. Yes. What a working-class hero, that big supremo of the Business Profits Council of he, Catherine Livingston, the workers' sweat. Just when we've become accustomed to key caring business class figures telling us wages and wage rises were crippling the economy, Catherine, in a plea for the government to do more to explain how the success of the caring business class is good for all of us, said... The political system must face up to the harsh realities of chronic budget deficits and slow wages growth. Reality is a harsh, all right, uh, workers agreed. So thank you, Catherine, for recognising that slow wages growth is a harsh reality and doubtless workers can now depend on you to back the obvious solution to the problem. Of all the economic problems you have to worry about, the solution to this one is a breeze. But apparently another solution is no breeze, rather a headwind coming from the north. Well, a horde of selfish so-called refugees fleeing our illegal invasions and thinking they could just turn up here and move in, ignoring the impact a few thousand people would have on our way of life. And whoever heard of people just turning up in boats and taking over the country? Well, since 1788 anyway. and The PNG government and our very own Minister for Concentration Camp's Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Peter Duffer, have announced the Manus Refugee Holiday Island Resort will close sometime, sometime, showing their understanding of the word forthwith. The Supreme Court ruling some months ago it must close forthwith. Someone should toss Peter a dictionary and open it at the appropriate page and perhaps to make it even easier for him underline forthwith Uh, would you just read what it says? I, uh, uh, I, uh, I I haven't got my glasses. While these bloody goody-goody-lots have reported all these alleged, alleged human rights problems on Nauru, but Pete and his predecessor scuttled them more lash-sun, said most of them were minor matters like suicide and self-immolation, and anyway, Nauru has nothing whatever to do with true blue aside from funding the whole thing and providing the thugs, and Pete also pointed out it is illegal to report what is going on in the concentration camps that have nothing to do with True Blue Aussie. We must look at prosecuting these criminals, although let me assure the True Blue Aussie people that what is going on in these idyllic island resorts is not going on. Endorsed by the Finance for Caring Business Class Minister, Matthias rotten Tuther, informing us many of the allegations are quite historical in nature. Uh, Just how historical, Matthias? Some go back as far as yesterday. Defending public funds, the Lord Rupert of wapping sin came up with yet another beat-up about politicians wasting taxpayers' money. Not sure why Lord Rupert would worry about that. There's none of his involved. Taxpayers' money. This time a state socialist party MP taking a couple of trips overseas at taxpayers' expense. But in this case, we do have to give top marks to the poly for her report on her trip to Paris. Paris, she said, is so take a stab list but what do you think she said educational visit, bringing back information expertise adding to our knowledge paris she said is so parisian <laughs> we'd never have guessed but finally back to those we can and must say we hate Look, their evil is so great, why, they're even claiming part-time and casual work distorts unemployment figures. Surely the time has come to declare evil unions illegal. Get this country back on the right track. Restore a bit of equilibrium to society. Allow caring employers and lazy avaricious workers to negotiate win-win agreements without outside interference. Or better still, get rid of workers altogether, given be they union or not union, they are a continual problem to poor caring employers. Let the caring employers do the work themselves. There, problem solved. Showing just how resilient caring employers are, despite all these problems, the latest social research shows the rich are getting richer. So despite the evil unions, I hate to say it, I oh, know I can't say, I hate to say it. The greatest little economic order of them all is achieving what it must achieve to lift the indigent out of poverty, which is the sole raison d'etre of the economic order. The rich getting richer, just a necessary, unavoidable side effect. Good morning.
0: And uh, the indubitable Kevin Healy, that was the week that was... Probably most people, including me, I have to say, believe that they're not worth spying on. Think again. And I have been thinking again. According to Glenn Todd, who's a super geek and community organizer, there's a multitude of reasons to protect yourself and your community when you go online. And it was interesting. We were talking about that just before in one of the interviews especially if you and your community are involved in any kind of campaign work and activism. Glenn Todd is the founder of Action Skills. It's a project dedicated to training and upskilling activists around the issue of digital security. This is an interview he did with Phil Evans, who's a campaign worker at Friends of the Earth. And the interview was recorded earlier this week.
6: Digital security is, is, is a really important thing, but I don't think activists are really taking it seriously. We uh, hear a lot about the infiltration of groups by uh, agents in, in the real world, and in light of all the things that um, Edward Snowden has uh, released around the NSA and, uh, and the PRISM Network collecting so much information on everybody, why do you think that uh, activists aren't really taking digital security so seriously?
4: Uh, I just think it's part of the general um, lack of skills with computer technology generally and we've been very fortunate that the police and authorities have been very slack and um, not very good at this either, although that's changing very rapidly. They're putting lots of money and investment into digital security from state police, federal police to ASIO. State police have been investing heavily in hacking software and we can see that they're um, really upscaling. we now need to promote within our communities, and we also need
6: to upscale to protect ourselves from that threat. Sure, so there has been a, a kind of rising culture over the last couple of years of uh, these things called crypto parties. I remember um, it must have been about four years ago, um, I went to a crypto party with you, Glenn, in Melbourne, and, and we're quite nerdy, and even we found it too overwhelming. Why do you think, how, what, what, is, is that part of the problem, do you think, that uh, it's just too complicated for people?
4: Uh, yeah, four years ago when I we went to that party it was too complicated and I also think about two years and even one year ago it was too complicated. Uh, a lot has changed though, we've got people like myself that are translating the geeky stuff to English and normal language for people. But then also technology is progressing, we've got things like Signal which does encrypted messaging on your phone which is just easy to install, you just install it like an app. So some of the really complexities. Uh, in the past. I mean, they're still there, but there's, uh, there's a lot of things that are real quite easy now for normal layman, uh, persons to do.
6: Sure. So I noticed on your, um, on your website, you talked about everyone getting involved in digital security, not just activists, and um, developing this idea of uh, herd immunity. I wonder if you could unpack that for our listeners a little bit.
4: Okay. So it's a bit like a concept of if they're looking for a needle in a haystack, So if you could just do an X-ray over the whole haystack, it's very easy to find that needle, which is how they're operating at the moment. And if that needle is something that, say, a peace activist, for example, that's a very bad scenario for us. So if we encrypt every bit of those straws, including our discussions with our mum about our laundry, uh, it means that they can't just easily X-ray that haystack, and that needle becomes very hard to find. So just by everybody in the entire network encrypting, uh, a messaging it means that they they then have to go to to old school traditional policing, which is to get a warrant, do an investigation, and actually uh, do the police work, rather than just automatically scanning the haystack.
6: Sure. And you touched on Signal there, and um, a bit later on, let's talk about um, four things that um, every activist can do, or well, probably every person can do, to make their um, their digital life a little more secure. But now, I wanted to um, touch on that idea that that everyone needs to do it. There's a program called Tor, um, which is a browser that uh, basically hides your uh, behavior online, and that requires uh, more people to be online about it. Would you be able to explain to people a little bit about Tor?
4: Okay, so uh, Tor works by jumping between lots of different users and encrypting along the way. So it creates such a long message that you cannot reverse engineer that. Uh, The actual specific technologies um, you've got to find online, Uh, but the concept is the more people that use it, the faster it becomes. So it can be quite slow in Australia. Uh, So the more people that start using that, then the faster and more efficient that technology will become. It's a bit like BitTorrent. The more people using BitTorrent, the more efficient and faster it becomes.
6: Mm, and I remember during the, uh, the uh, some of the uprisings, during the Arab Spring and the um, Occupy movement, um, the Tor network was actually quite fast because there was a lot of people encrypting the, uh, the work that they were doing.
4: So a lot of these technologies work by scale. So the more people use them, the, the more efficient they become. Uh,
6: one thing that um, you showed me the other day was uh, this website called I Know Where Your Cat Lives and uh it really like hit for me the fact that there is so much information online and it is really easy to pull all that information and and really start to paint a picture uh um, of people a website like that um you know what what sort of level of uh, information do you think is like really easily gleaned off someone's phone if they are uh, if they're not encrypting their phone
4: well it depends if they've got access to the actual phone itself or whether it's your communications. Um, so the I Know Where Your Cat Lives is a site that scrapes photos off the internet and uses the location data um, to, and the subject of cats to pinpoint where those cats live as a demonstration of, of say, how that could apply to children. So uh, most phones, if you've got the settings turned on on your camera, will actually give that location settings data in actual... Um, photo itself so if you're taking photos of the children for example and posting them on social media, uh, somebody could actually pull those photos down, find the location and then find the location of those children for example. So first step would be to switch off location details for your um, images for example.
6: Yeah, that's scary stuff, isn't it? Um, and, you know, like uh, Facebook and whatnot, you know, encourage us to uh, tag, put the location in and uh, and the, and the um, tag the people. Um, I noticed yesterday when I was uploading some photos um, from the Anarchist Book Fair, um, which I took with consent as per the safest spaces policy. Um, sorry, side note. But um, Facebook um, was asking me to tag people and it was suggesting people. Is that saying that Facebook is using some sort of facial recognition technology in it?
4: Facebook's one of the world's leading researchers in facial rec- recognition technology. And the interesting thing with Facebook is their business model is not to sell um, a subscription fee, it's that they sell data. So they sell you. So that um, facial recognition technology is being sold. Uh, who to? Or well, it's a private company, so who knows who they're selling it to. So, yeah, when you're tagging your friends, um, yeah, you are actually adding to that data that they sell to other people.
6: Mm. And, and, and all this stuff is really scary, um, but um, as activists, these tools are really important to us. So um, it feels like there's this real tension between wanting to do the right thing digitally and, uh, and, uh, um, and, and join that herd immunity, but also to be able to uh, to organise. How, how do you think we can balance that uh, kind of tension? Uh,
4: yeah, it's a really uh, good point because, you know, an ultra-paranoid uh, and, technically secure uh, activist is actually going to be less effective because you know, there are certain tools that are, such as Facebook that aren't good for organizing. So I think it's really a case of using common sense, so learning about the technology and then learning how to use it wisely. So for example, you may use Facebook to advertise your events and to organize on it but then you wouldn't use it as a core organizing tool and you definitely wouldn't put anything sensitive up there. Yeah, so it's about um, you know using the technology, um, but then really being street smart and thinking about how you're using it and what sort of data you're putting on these technologies.
6: Mm, and Facebook's one of those things, isn't it, that if, even if you're in a uh, a secret group or a private message, really that information is not secure at all, is it?
4: Uh, the, under law, if the Australian police put a uh, warrant on that information, then they legally have to give that to them, uh, and they will give them to it. Um, they have a direct relationship with the um, American intelligence community, so we would assume anything that's on Facebook is accessible by uh, the authorities.
6: I wanted to start to look at, uh, you have this great list of um, four things that everyone should be doing to uh, to start to communicate more uh, securely online and I just wanted to slowly go through those things um, making sure we get like a little bit of detail about how people can actually implement rather than just talking about these things which seems to happen a lot. Do you want to go through those four things and then maybe we'll just go through them one by one?
4: Yeah. so I've got a few things uh, so, so maybe we'll just start and then we'll see how much time we've got. Great. So the first thing is to install encrypted messaging so that means that your text messages are encrypted uh, which means that they can't be spied upon, um, so Signal, WhatsApp are uh, two uh, trusted ones at the moment and also you may have heard of Wicca which uh, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull was using while um, implementing the, non- the technologies to spy on us, so install one of those three, we, we recommend Signal um, and then start using it, Re- um, get your mum to install it and, and so when you're talking about the washing the um, age I'll be sitting there getting really worried about what that message is with your mum. Mm-hmm.
6: And I, I remember installing that on my uh, Android phone. It was really easy and um, really, really quick and easy to install and quick to integrate into your life.
4: The other next thing is to be smart about your passwords, so start um, learning about secure passwords. So most people have really easy passwords to crack. And from experience working with hacked websites, mm-hmm. it's generally a, a dodgy password. So start using long and um, passwords with multiple characters. I mean, if you just Google secure passwords, you'll find that sort of stuff. And we also recommend using uh, password managers. So the problem with that is you're putting all your eggs in one basket. However, it's not humanly possible to remember a lot of secure passwords. So we're recommending that you find um, password managers such as um, Dashlane, OnePass, um, LastPass, which then puts all your passwords into an encrypted system, so then you have to remember one really long good password, and then all of your secure passwords are within that, so it helps you uh, remember all these complex passwords that you, you're going to need to implement mm,
6: Sure, I heard um, a really good tip around passwords as well, was to uh, use things like uh, the first letters of the lyrics of songs to remember so, Mary had a little lamb M H. A L L. I think that was right. Need to write it down. Or things like that to try and do it rather than using um, names of people, um, places where you were born or like to visit, and dates, birth dates as well. Something your children's
4: name and birth date. <laughs> hack. Uh, yeah, so I recommend having long passwords. So uh, 14 characters is far more secure than 12. Mm-hmm. So even if you're writing a sentence out, just got a 24, 32 character password, far more secure than a random 12 character password. Yeah. Wow, so you that's... might may write yourself a sentence with a few like random stuff in there, and
6: you'll, that's your password. So with one question I had around those uh, um, those uh, LastPass and Dashlane kind of uh, uh, password managers, they some of them embed themselves within browsers, and so they automatically come up and and offer those things. Are they really secure? Given that we know that uh, um, uh, like programs like FinSpy, which is used to spy on activists. Um, and used in Australia by the New South Wales Police, um, actually embeds itself in the updates of things like Mozilla and Chrome and iTunes?
4: Okay, so uh, to answer that, is more about understanding that security is not perfect, and there's always a trade-off between convenience um, and your skill level and security. So what we're talking about today is for beginners to try and get people to the first level or first couple stages of really good security. Um, if you've been hacked and targeted by something like FinSpy, then they're actually logging your keystrokes. So at that point, pretty much anything you do is is um, being hacked. Um, what what we're trying to preach is that we secure our systems before those, so that you don't get
0: infected by those sort of things in the first place. And you're listening to Glenn Todd talking about digital security. If you've just tuned in, we're Solidarity Breakfast.
6: So the next thing I know, um, you had was around um, encryption, which is one of those things that um, that turned me off when I first started looking at uh, at, a, um, at a digital security stuff. Um, so what is encryption?
4: Okay, so encryption is just using fancy mathematics to lock uh, data with a password. So there's a lot more complex than that, but that's all we really need to understand. The other thing we need to understand is is it is it secure? And the Snowden leaks has revealed that the U.S. authorities can't crack current encryption. That's not to say that their technology won't change and they may in the future. But generally, even if they can crack it in the future, it's going to take massive computer resources. they um, are talking about huge supercomputers, long periods of time to crack um, encryption. So it does work. And even if it stopped working, it's still um, quite hard for them to crack
6: Mm. And, and there's a few different ways that um, you can encrypt, isn't there? So um, you can encrypt your hard drive, um, you can encrypt your phone, but you can also encrypt folders as well.
4: Yep. So um, on a Mac, it's very easy. You just switch encryption on. Um, and I know on Android phone, you just switch it on. Um, so I share with be similar in windows and Linux. Um, mm-hmm. Now... Yeah, it's also important to, ha- to learn how to make encrypted folders on your actual hard drive because they're fundamentally more secure. Um, so for example, I've got an encrypted folder with passwords in it and any sensitive docs you may have, so you would have that encrypted uh, folder and on an encrypted system. And I also recommend that you encrypt all your external hard drives as well. So in, in a scenario where drives get stolen or, or um, are in the wrong hands,
6: and they can't actually access any of that data. Sure. So I know on, um, on Linux, I'm an um, avid Linux user, it's as easy as going into settings and saying encrypt hard drive. Yep. <laughs> it's, it's not hard to find as well. And in Windows, it, it's very similar as well. And I know uh, for iPhones and Androids, it's really, really easy to do. All it, well, it really requires that you've got your phone plugged in at the time when you're doing it, and I think it takes you know, anywhere between 20 minutes and an hour to do it, but it's definitely worth doing
4: yeah so there's, there's two points there one is this, uh, if the that data gets in the wrong hand then they can't can't access that but I do want to stress make sure you've got a backup system in place if anything goes wrong with the encryption or if you forget your password mm-hmm. then you will not get your data back so it's very important so you may want to write down your fancy new long password that you've just discovered and you may want to on paper and you may want to hide that in a safe location in case you forget your password and Always have backups in place before doing encryption, just in case something goes wrong with the technology or you, or you, do, you misunderstand it yourself and do something wrong, then you make sure you don't lose your data.
6: Sure. One thing I don't know how to do is to encrypt a folder, which you touched on before. Can you, can you walk us through even how to do that on one platform? Because they're generally quite similar.
4: Okay. So on a Mac, you, open, you go to a folder on your desktop, and you right-mouse-click and choose
6: encrypt folder. Oh, wow, it's that simple. <laughs> I feel really, really bad for I've never doing that before. And I, I remember you were telling the, um, the, uh, um, the story of, uh, you know, like of, uh, the um, deniability, like in terms of uh, if you forget passwords and things like that, if you're compelled to give evidence in, in court. We well, maybe don't yeah. want to talk about that on radio. <laughs> yep, so in court, uh,
4: you legally have to give passwords So that would be your choice, uh, obviously with legal advice in that context. Um, However, having random encrypted folders, there's less um, less argument that you know that password. So you're you're obviously going to know your main password opening a computer, but then it is debatable in a court of law if that random encrypted folder on your hard drive that you actually got the password to.
6: Mm, and we all know how easy it is to forget a password.
4: <laughs> yes.
6: Sure. And um, the last point uh, we're going to touch on was um, VPN. I don't even know what VPN stands for.
4: Um, I don't think that's a virtual private network, I think. Um, however, the, the technology, basically what it does is it creates an encrypted channel between your computer and another server on the Internet. So generally, they're in other countries. So you may have one in the U.S. or one in Switzerland, for example. And so what that does is when you surf on the internet, your internet connection will then be in that country rather than in Australia. So the really important thing about a VPN is it stops all the Australian spy programs, not all the SPI, but the um, metadata collection that the government's just implemented. Mm -hmm. Because you're not in Australia, they they can't snoop on your data. You're, You're coming from another country. It also means if you want to watch say, a BBC series um, and you're not in, in Britain, you could ping into a VPN that's in Britain and therefore you're, you're coming on the internet from Britain, so therefore you'll be able to access BBC.
6: Well, you just added a, an, an extra benefit for, for actually going down and taking that step.
4: Yeah. Uh, in that context, it won't stop any sort of targeted um, investigation. So if the authorities are, are watching you specifically, then a VPN... Um, we'll make it a little hard for them, but not much because I'll just literally follow your VPN connection and find where that's coming out, which is why Tor is a, uh, a much higher level of security because it will actually encrypt that channel a few times through different systems. Mm. Mm. Thing that- is, Tor can get slow, um, and a VPN will slow your connections slightly. Um, so if, if, if uh, Tor's too slow for you, um, for your day-to-day activities, you may use the VPN.
6: Sure, and and you can um, easily search for VPN to find um, heaps of providers, and I think they start around $10 a month or something like that. Is that right?
4: Uh, I'm paying $7 a month. Um, it's also important to have a look at what companies and who owns those companies of mm. the VPN providers, um, and maybe have a bit of a search around for ones that are trusted by security geeks.
0: And you were listening to Glenn Todd. He works with activists and uh, campaigners. His group, his organization is called Action Skills. And we'll put a few of those details up on our website. Bit of a geeky discussion there, but lots of interesting things talking about digital security. And he was discussing that with Phil Evans from Friends of the Earth. We've been Solidarity Breakfast. I'm John. We got to get out of here. It's just about nine o'clock actually it's uh, eight fifty six. I thought we might go out with a track from Jamo Thomas because we've been talking about security, digital security sur- surveillance, online surveillance, keystroke surveillance. Goodness knows what's happening with your mobile phones. We'll talk to you next week.